Well, good evening, Collective Hope. You are doing well, as I know you've already said so tonight. Uh, when you have a beautiful day and a beautiful week, it just makes everything a little bit more enjoyable, doesn't it? And uh, I know a lot of people, they try to get uh, and start losing weight in January. It's a great thing to accomplish. Not me, because there's a lot of winter left, okay? I should probably start in January, but it's usually about this time of year when I try to put on clothes for warmer weather, and I realize that none of them fit. And uh, if you are with me, you came to the right church this evening, and uh, I don't have to tell you how great Collective has been, uh, because it has been real nice. I mean, that we have been great energy in this room and God doing some great things which I know we'll get to continue to celebrate as we go through this evening. And uh, if you've been here for one day, one week, one month, or been around this church for a decade, man, you ought to know that we exist to help people find an intimate personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It drives everything that we do. It's the reason we are sitting in this room tonight. And last week, Chris Hickman helped unfold this idea as he kind of showed the difference between just knowing God and having a relationship with God. And when you get into a relationship with something or someone, right, the closer you get, the more per personal you get, things can tend to get a little uncomfortable. Because the closer we get to something, the more vulnerable or exposed we feel. And I'll tell you that, this one time, I uh, went to go get measured for a wedding suit. And we went into this place downtown here in Quincy. And I was with my, one of my good friends and his father-in-law. And we're getting measured up. And they pick out the tux and stuff they want. And, I, and he starts measuring me. And if you've been measured for a suit, it's a different experience uh, for a guy. It's kind of like getting a physical and turn your head and cough. But we get in here, and he starts measuring me. And he starts aggressive. All right, he's kind of tossing me around, spinning me, doing his thing. And then the aggressive nature turns to something a little bit more gentle. And I'm like, hold up. I know this trick. And I'm not about this trick, especially with a dude. And he, he is measuring me like full contact. All right, he is in places he shouldn't be. I am extremely uncomfortable. And I remember just like looking at my friends, and they're rolling laughing and I'm just completely uncomfortable I'm like bro you you don't your hand doesn't need to be there like you don't need to grab that and I was like somebody's getting married I'm not marrying you and I'm definitely not marrying that cold curious hand of yours and I kid you not when we go to leave he looks me dead in my eyes he goes I bet you're happy to see me today I was like no no not at all there's nothing about me that was excited or happy in that situation. I was extremely uncomfortable. But on the flip side, sometimes when you get close to something, when you get personal with something, it actually becomes the most comfortable place or one of the safest places in the world. I want you to think about if you are married or you are in a relationship or you think about the relationship that you have with your family and friends. I mean, it is the definition of what it means to be close to something. And there's few things that really relate to it. And if you know someone, you tend to know their name. You, you know their first name, and if you really know them, you know their middle name. 
You probably know the names of people around them. And you probably got terms of endearment. You got nicknames, you know, boo, pookie, words of profanity, any other thing that you fill in the blank with. Like, if you know somebody, you have a name or names for them. And if someone doesn't know your name, there's a good chance that they don't know you. Like today, I went to go out and I bought some paint. And he said, what's your name? I said, my name is Josh. He said, well, how do you spell that? He says, J-O, I'm like, uh, S-C-H? Like, how else do you spell Josh? It's J-O-S-H. I've never seen. Now, there's some difficult names out there, but Josh, Matt, pretty standard, all right? There's not a lot of variations to those spellings. If somebody doesn't know your name, there's a good chance they don't know you. Now, working in a church or attending church, there's a lot of names that you should know or we should know. And sometimes, man, I get stuck and I got to apologize to you because I want to know your name and I want to know a lot about you. And sometimes... I fall a little bit short. Uh, and I know that there's people in this room. This might be your first time. And you walked in here, and you might know somebody. You might be sitting close to somebody, but there's nobody who knows your name. Now I'm telling you that our desire is to change that. We want you to be known by name. We want to know what matters to you. Because when you really look, at what this is all about, what scripture is all about. God knows you by name. So we desire to know you by name. He knows you by name. He knows the sound of your voice. He knows the number of hairs that are on your head. He knows the desires that are within your heart. He knows the dreams that are within your mind. I want you to check out these first couple of scriptures. Psalm 139 says, Oh Lord, you have examined my heart and you know everything about me. You know when I sit down or stand up. You know my thoughts even when I'm far away. And then in later in that, that psalm, it says, you knit me together in my mother's womb. And then you find in Isaiah, it says, do not be afraid for I have ransomed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. And so when you come into this room and you encounter God, he's coming to you and saying, I know you by name. I've created you, I have designed you, I know you better than you probably know yourself. I know your feelings, I know your thoughts, I see you. And as we get personal tonight, God is asking you, do you know my name? I know yours, I call you by it, do you know mine? And as we look through Scripture, all throughout the Bible, there are numerous names for God. And every time a name for God is used, it helps us understand uh, either a specific attribute of God or a truth about God. And uh, we're going to walk through a few. So first one is in Genesis 1.1. And you guys probably know this. It's in the beginning. Let's try it again. So in the beginning, God. That's it. The first use of the name God in Scripture. And the word is, is not, is translated God into our language, but the word is Elohim. 
and it doesn't really seem anything that extravagant until you really start to study the original language. And when you look at the word Elohim, there's a part of that word that refers to just God and God Almighty. But it is the plural form of a singular thought or a single word. So you, you have in this one word a singular thought, a singular word, but you, it exists in the plural form. And then when you continue to read in the, the first verse, in a couple verses of Scripture, it goes through and talks about how the Spirit was hovering over the waters. And you read in John that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. And we know that the Word was Jesus. And so you see at the very beginning of Scripture, one little name, Elohim, having such a profound and large truth. Because it's talking about how, yes, there is this one God. But there is the Father, there is the Son, there is the Holy Spirit. And you see this name for God, as you start to unfold it, so much meaning pours out of it. Another one that you are very, very familiar with is Psalm 23. It says, the Lord is my shepherd. So when we read this in our English Bibles, it looks like a statement. It looks like a phrase, like, oh, the Lord is my shepherd. But when you look at the original language, this isn't a statement, it's a name. And it's the name Jehovah Raha. And so when he goes here, when David's writing this psalm, he's calling God by a name. It is, it's, and it's, uh, it's a word or name of endearment. And, he's say, and as David is writing this, he's saying, God, you are my shepherd. You protect me, you lead me. You guide me. And I think all of you know, calling somebody by a name, man, it is way more intimate than just saying something about them or describing them or, or, or having a statement about them. But when you actually have a name and you use it to describe something, and it's a, it is a word that holds meaning, is far more intimate. And the other names in Scripture, and as you read for God, they're, they're a little bit more obvious, like we find in Genesis 17. And it says this, When Abra- Abra- Abram, who be soon will become Abraham in this Scripture, was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am El Shaddai, God Almighty. So God comes to Abram, and in this scripture, when you look all around it, it, God comes to Abram, and he delivers him a promise. And he says that I will bless the entire world through your offspring. And this is where Abram becomes Father Abraham, if you grew up in church and used to sing little songs. And in this promise, God gives him a promise, but then he says, I am El Shaddai. And it means God Almighty or sufficient one. And when you look at the word Shaddai, it is a word that derives from the word that references a mother breastfeeding her child. So at this point, Abraham is 99 years old. He has struggled to have children. He's not been able to have a legitimate child that will carry on the promise that God gave to him and to the rest of the world. And then God comes to him and says, I am El Shaddai. 
and he's using language of a mother taking care of his child to a man who is struggling to have a child, but God keeps promising that he's going to give him a child. And the man is 99 years old. And you see, God comes to Abraham. He gives him a promise, and he doesn't just give him a promise, but then he gives himself a name that affirms that promise by saying, hey, I made this promise to you. I am the sufficient one. I am God Almighty. And all through Scripture, we see people having conversations like Abraham had a conversation with God in the Scripture. And these conversations are where we learn all the different names of God. Sometimes they declare truth like we just kind of discovered, and other times they simply declare and explain a moment that happened, a, a moment in Scripture. And we could choose any name of God and speak an entire sermon on it. But tonight I wanted to choose a moment in Scripture that we are very familiar with, a, a, something that we've heard before, and so that we can understand what it means to accompany the name of God that is in that scripture. And this name starts in Genesis 22. And it's one of the only places in scripture that this name is used. And so we just heard about Abraham receiving this promise from God. This, this promise that he would have a child and God would bless the entire world through it. Now it took Abraham over a hundred years to have this legitimate child named Isaac. But when we get to Genesis 22... He has this child, right? He has a relationship with his son that is named Isaac. And so here's where we can pick up in verse 1. It says this. Sometime later, God tested Abraham's faith. Abraham, God called. Yes, he replied, here I am. Take your son, your only son, yes, Isaac, whom you love so much, and go to the land of Moriah. Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. You know, we, get to, we talk about Jesus being sacrificed a lot. And we talk about it so much, and we try, and we have communion so we don't forget the importance of that moment. But sometimes as we read things over and over again, we, we start to lose how heavy of a moment this was. Abraham waited a hundred years, over a hundred years, and he finally had this son to fulfill the promise that God gave him. And God comes and says, hey, I'm asking you to go kill him, to go sacrifice him. And if this were me, this is the moment that, that I'm out, because I don't think my faith in God is large enough or my relationship with God is deep enough to respond the way that Abraham did. Because the way that Abraham responded to this request was, was filled with faith. And this is what we see in verse 3. It says, The next morning Abraham got up early. He saddled his donkey and took two of his servants with him, along with his son Isaac. Then he chopped up wood for a fire. For a burnt offering and set out for the place God had told him about. 
On the third day of their journey, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Stay here with the donkey, Abraham told the servants. The boy and I will travel a little farther. We will worship there, and then we will come right back. Abraham woke up. He saddled his donkey, and he followed God's request. Now, I want you to think how different our lives would be if when God came to us and, and pushed something on our hearts or prompted us if we immediately woke up and we did it. I think our, life would, our lives would look a little different. But, but even in the most difficult of requests, Abraham wakes up, he saddles his donkey, he gathers his servant, he gathers his son and these supplies, and he sets out. Now here's a little side note. Right, we know that Abraham was asked to go kill Isaac. But when he gets to the moment where he looks at the mountain, he says, hey, stay here. Me and my son, we're going to go on a little farther. We're going to worship God, and then we will return. We will come right back. So Abraham fully intended on sacrificing his child. He had everything he needed. But we also learn that Abraham fully intended to return back with his son. And if you read later in Scripture, much later in Scripture, Abraham understood how powerful God was. He understood how sufficient God was. And he believed or reasoned that if God was asking him to kill a son, that God had the ability to raise him from the dead. And so, filled with faith, he set out to do what God had asked. And I believe Abraham had enough faith to make the movement to sacrifice his child because his faith was focused on God's ability, not the limitations of the world. But, We'll come back to that. Verse 6. It says, So Abraham placed the wood for the burnt offering on Isaac's shoulders, while he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them walked on together, Isaac turned to Abraham and said, Father? Yes, my son, Abraham replied. We have the fire and the wood, the boy said, but where is the sheep for the burnt offering? God will provide a sheep for the burnt offering, my son. Abraham answered, and they both walked on together. Now Isaac is carrying this wood, this wood for the sacrifice, and he starts to understand what's happening, right? He sees the picture that's being painted, and he's like, man, we got everything we need except the one thing we're going to sacrifice. And so that's where he says, uh, Father, now what are we going to sacrifice? And that's where we see this conversation continue. We see God have a conversation with Abraham. And then we see this conversation continue between Abraham and Isaac. Has anybody seen 1883? Some of you all have. Uh, Yellowstone, it's the prequel to Yellowstone. And through this thing, at the very, towards the end of the season... This family is traveling out west, and one of their children, um, one of their, their oldest daughter, is wounded. 
and she doesn't know it, but her, her injury will result in death. The parents understand it, but the girl hasn't yet understood it. And I, at the end of one of the episodes, I'll explain it as best as possible. But the, the girl is narrating the story, and she says, Looking at the pain in my father's eyes, I knew I was going to die. And as you watch that, those final episodes, like my wife is ugly crying. And like it, it is so emotional and gut-wrenching. It gets to the point where I'm like, why are we watching this crap? Like it is, it's heavy. And you just, you feel, you, you feel the sorrow. You feel the turmoil. You feel the, just the helplessness of this family as they know their child is going to die. And they keep pushing on. In the final episode, it's the father taking his daughter, and they go on to find a place where she will die. And they get to this place, the place that they will make their home, and they look out, and she explains her feelings, and she passes away, and you just feel just the loss. And it builds all this emotion. And as I was studying for this and i was reading the story of abraham and isaac right that is the emotion that i was picturing between abraham and isaac you are walking up a mountain knowing that you are going to sacrifice the one thing that you probably love more than anything in the world you are given your very best your only son who you waited a hundred years for and you were going to go sacrifice and then you have this conversation where the son starts to realize what is happening. And I imagine Abraham explaining it with so much pain, with so much sorrow, as he's looking at his child and explaining what is going to happen. But you see the constant promise that carries through this story. Because Abraham responds that God will provide. God will provide, even though it doesn't feel like it right now. God will provide. And we continue in verse 9. When they arrive at the place where God had told him to go, Abraham built an altar and arranged the wood on it. Then he tied his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham picked up the knife to kill his son as a sacrifice. And at that moment, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Now when we read this, they use the word boy. But uh, can you stand up for me right here? Can you stand up? Stand up for me. No, it's awkward. Yeah, go ahead. How old are you? 21. Scholars would say that Isaac was anywhere from 20 to 30. So would you say a boy was bound and thrown on an altar? This is Isaac. You can go ahead and sit down now. Thank you for that. You look nice, by the way. But that, that when you visually put, that is Isaac. And you, look, you have a man that's over 100 years old, and you have a son that's anywhere from 20 to 30. He is collective age range. 
if there were a fight, if there were a battle, Isaac would win. Abraham is old and he is fragile. And Isaac is at the physical peak. So if there was any type of wrestling of, of how the sacrifice would happen, Isaac would have won. And this is where I know the conversation that started in the last section of Scripture carried over into what is happening in this section of Scripture. Isaac had just as much faith as Abraham because he was willing to move forward with the sacrifice. He was fully aware of what was happening. And I imagine this was a very unique conversation. But when we are faced with turmoil in our life, when we are faced with resistance, what if we responded with a conversation rather than conflict? Rather than trying to fight it, rather than trying to push against it, what if we just simply had a conversation? And that's what we see here, and it comes to this understanding, and this conversation concluded with God will always come through. God will always provide. And this is what we find. At the conclusion of this section, it says, the angel was speaking to Abraham and said, don't lay a hand on the boy. Do not hurt him in any way. For now I know that you truly fear God. You have not withheld from me even your son, your only son. Then Abraham looked up and he saw a ram caught in, by its horns in a thicket. So he took the ram and he sacrificed it as a burnt offering in place of his son. Abraham named the place Yahweh Yirah, or Jehovah Jireh, which means the Lord will provide. To this day, people still use that name as a proverb. On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. And in a moment where Abraham and Isaac were fully committed to sacrifice, we truly understand what it means to call God by the name Jehovah Jireh. It means the Lord will provide. And that is the truth that pushed Abraham and Isaac to the altar. And that is the truth that saved Isaac from this sacrifice. And, and this isn't a past tense idea. This name for God is present tense. It's not saying the Lord did provide. It's saying that the Lord will provide. And when, we, when you have this moment where Abraham and Isaac are continuing to have this conversation, as they continue to have this conversation with God, and they're saying, and they call God by the name Jehovah Jireh, they're saying, the Lord will provide even when it doesn't feel like it, even when it doesn't make sense, God will provide. And when we call out to our God and we call him Jehovah Jireh, it means that he will provide. And many times through Scripture, when you, are, when you, you see the word Jireh, now, this is the only time it's used as a name. But every other time it's used in Scripture, it refers to sight. It refers to you seeing something. 
And so all through Scripture, you have this word that talks about observing something, talks about seeing something. And then we see Abraham calling God, saying, I know you see the need, and I have faith that you will provide. And that's exactly what God did, and it's exactly what God does. So when we call out to our God, we call out to Jesus, we call out to Jehovah Jireh. It means that God sees you, and he will provide for you. You know, early in the message, he knows your hearts, he knows your minds, he knows you for who you truly are. Not who you pretend to be, not who you display to be, and maybe not even who you want to be, but he sees you for the real you. And yet, he still calls you. He still knows you. And he calls you out by name. And he's saying, Wes, I see you. Abby, I see you. Sam, I see you. Taylor, I see you. I see everything about you, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and I will provide for you. I will take care of you. And as, you re as we read through Abraham and Isaac, I'm sure you noticed the similarities between what happened with Isaac and what happened to Jesus. Right? It comes with this idea that Isaac and Jesus, they are both the one and only son. Isaac was fully aware of the sacrifice that was going to take place. So if he wanted to fight it, he could have. But he understood the sacrifice just as Jesus understood when he came to heaven. He knew the sacrifice that would be happening at the end. And Isaac, he carried the wood and we know Jesus carried his cross to the place he was crucified. And Abraham and Isaac, they went to the land of Moriah, to the region of Moriah, which is the place where Solomon would eventually build the temple, where God would live in the Holy of Holies. And then you keep moving forward in Scripture, and you find that that is the same region that Jesus came, carried his cross, and endured his sacrifice. And in that sacrifice is where God says, I provided for you. And yes, God provided for us 2,000 years ago. But when we call out the name Jehovah Jireh, it means that he will provide for you right here in this moment. Jesus sees you. He knows you by name. Do you know him by name? And whether you do or don't, 
it's time to start that conversation. It's time to ask, what are you saying to me? What do you see in me? And how are you providing for me? Let's pray. Father, thank you for being a God who knows us. Thank you for being a God because even though you see everything about us, Father, you want us, you know us, and you sent your son Jesus to rescue us. And as we call out the name Jehovah Jireh, Father, we cling to the idea that you see us and you provide for us. And then we look to the name of Jesus, which means that you save and you rescue. And in this moment, Jesus, as we call upon your name, as we call upon Jehovah Jireh, as we understand what you have done, what you and you will continue to do right here in this moment. Father, help us come to you and talk to you right now. It's your name that we pray.